Chapter 47 In which the account of how Sancho Panza behaved in his governorship continues. The history recounts that Sancho Panza was taken from the courtroom to a sumptuous palace, where, in a large hall, a royal and extremely clean table was set. As soon as Sancho entered the hall, there was a sound of flagellets, and four pages came out with water to wash his hands, which Sancho received with great solemnity. The music ceased, and Sancho sat down at the head of the table, because that was the only chair and the only place laid on the entire table. A personage, who later proved to be a physician, came to stand at his side, holding a rod of whalebone in his hand. They lifted the fine white cloth that covered the fruit and a wide variety of dishes holding different foods. One man, who looked like a student, said the blessing, and a page put a bib trimmed in lace on Sancho. Another, who was performing the duties of a butler, placed a dish of fruit in front of him. He had barely eaten a mouthful when the man with the rod used it to touch the dish, and it was taken away with extraordinary speed. But the butler placed another dish of different food in front of him, Sancho was about to try it, but before he could reach it and taste it, the rod had touched it, and a page removed it as quickly as the fruit had been taken away. When he saw this, Sancho was perplexed, and looking at everyone, he asked if the dinner was to be eaten like a conjuring trick, to which the man with the rod responded, "'It must be eaten, Senor Governor, according to the traditions and customs of other insulas where there are governors.' I, senor, am a physician, and on this insula I am paid to tend to its governors, and I care for their health much more than I do my own, studying day and night, and observing the governor's constitution and temperament in order to successfully cure him if he should fall ill. And the principal thing I do is to be present at his dinners and suppers, and allow him to eat what seems appropriate to me, and to take away what I imagine will do him harm and be injurious to his stomach. And so I ordered the dish of fruit removed because it was too damp, and the other dish as well because it was too hot, and had a good number of spices which increase thirst, and if one drinks too much, one destroys and consumes the radical humor which is to say, life. So that means that the dish of roasted partridges over there, nicely seasoned, it seems to me, won't do me any harm. To which the physician responded, the governor will not eat them as long as I am alive. But why? said Sancho. And the physician responded, Because our master Hippocrates, the pole star and light of medicine, says in one of his aphorisms, Omnis saturatio mala perdicis autem pessima, which means, A full stomach is bad, but a stomach full of partridges is very bad. If that's true, said Sancho, then see, senor doctor, which of the dishes on this table will do me the most good and which the least harm, and let me eat it without you tapping it, because by my life as a governor, and may God allow me to enjoy it, I am dying of hunger, and denying me food no matter what you tell me, senor doctor, means taking my life instead of lengthening it. Your grace is correct, senor governor, responded the physician, and so it is my opinion that your grace should not eat the rabbit stew over there, because that is a long-haired animal. You could have tasted the veal if it hadn't been roasted and marinated, but it's out of the question now. And Sancho said, That big bowl steaming over there looks to me like olla podrida. 
and because those stews have so many different kinds of things in them, I can't help but come across something that I like, and that will be good for me. Absit, said the physician, may so wicked a thought be far from us. There is nothing in the world less nourishing than an olla podrida. Let ollas podridas be for canons or rectors of colleges or peasant weddings, and keep them away from the tables of governors, where all things exquisite and elegant should be present. The reason is that simple medicines are always more highly esteemed than compound ones, everywhere and by everyone, because there can be no error in simple medicines, but there can be in compound ones, simply by changing the amounts of the things of which they are compounded. But I know that what the governor must eat now in order to preserve and fortify his health is a hundred rolled wafers and some very thin slices of quince which will settle his stomach and help his digestion. Hearing this, Sancho leaned back in his chair and stared fixedly at the physician and in a solemn voice asked him what his name was and where he had studied. To which he responded, My name, Senor Governor, is Dr. Pedro Recio de Aguero and I am a native of a town called Tirteafuera, which is between Caracuel and Almodovar del Campo, on the right-hand side, and I hold the degree of doctor from the University of Osuna. To which Sancho, in a rage, responded, Well, señor, Dr. Pedro Recio de Malaguero, native of Tirteafuera, a village that's on the right as we go from Caracuel to Almodovar del Campo, graduated from Osuna, get out of my sight! And if you don't, I swear by the sun that I'll take a cudgel, and starting with you, I'll beat all the doctors so hard there won't be a single one left anywhere on the insula, at least the ones I know to be ignorant, because wise, prudent, and intelligent doctors I'll respect and honor as if they were divine. And again I say that you should leave here, Pedro Recio, otherwise I'll take this chair that I'm sitting on and smash it over your head and they can bring charges against me, and I'll clear myself by saying that I did a service for God when I killed a bad doctor, who's the same as an executioner. Now, all of you, give me something to eat. Otherwise, take your governorship back, because an office that doesn't give a man food to eat isn't worth two beans. The physician became very agitated when he saw the governor so enraged, and he wanted to do a tirte afuera from the hall, but at that moment a post-horn sounded in the street, and the butler went to look out the window and then returned, saying, A courier has come from my lord the duke. He must be carrying an important dispatch. The courier came in, perspiring and intimidated, and after taking a sealed letter from inside his shirt, he placed it in the hands of the governor, and Sancho placed it in those of the steward, whom he ordered to read the address, which said, to Don Sancho Panza, governor of the Insula Barataria, to be delivered into his own hands or those of his secretary. Hearing this, Sancho said, Who here is my secretary? And one of those present responded, I am, senor, because I know how to read and write, and because I'm Basque. With that little addition, said Sancho, you could be secretary to the emperor himself. Open that letter and see what it says. The newly born secretary did so, and having read what it said, he said it was a matter that required privacy. Sancho ordered the hall cleared, with only the steward and the butler remaining. All the rest, including the physician, left, and then the secretary read the letter, which said, It has come to my attention, Senor Don Sancho Panza, that certain enemies of mine and of the insula will launch a furious attack, but I do not know on which night. 
it is advisable to keep watch and stay on guard so that they do not catch you unprepared. I have also learned through trusted spies that four persons in disguise have come to that place to take your life, for they fear your cleverness. Keep your eyes open, be aware of who comes to speak to you, and do not eat anything that is offered to you. I shall be sure to come to your aid if you find yourself in difficulty, and in everything you will act with your customary intelligence. From this place, the 16th of August, at four in the morning, your friend, the Duke. Sancho was astounded, as all the bystanders seemed to be as well, and turning to the steward he said, What has to be done now and done right away is to put Dr. Acio in jail. "'because if anybody's going to kill me, it'll be him, "'with this slow, painful death that comes from starvation.' "'It also seems to me,' said the butler, "'that your grace shouldn't eat anything that is on this table "'because it was prepared by nuns. "'And as the saying goes, behind the cross lurks the devil.' "'I don't deny it,' responded Sancho, "'and for now give me a piece of bread and about four pounds of grapes, "'because they really can't be poisoned and I can't get by without eating.' And if we have to be ready for those battles that are threatening us, we'll need to be well fed, because a full belly gives you courage, and not the other way around. And you, secretary, answer my lord the duke, and tell him that all his orders will be carried out as ordered, to the letter. And send my lady the duchess a kiss on the head from me, and say that I beg her not to forget to send a messenger with my letter and my bundle to my wife, Teresa Panza. And I'll be very grateful, and I'll be sure to serve her to the best of my ability. And while you're at it, you can include a kiss on the hand for my master, Don Quixote of La Mancha, so that he can see that I'm grateful. And you, like a good secretary and a good Basque, can add anything you want that's to the point. Now, clear the table and give me something to eat. And then I'll take on all the spies and killers and enchanters who want to attack me and my insula. At this moment a page came in and said, there's a farmer here, a petitioner, who wants to talk to your lordship about a matter that he says is very important. It's strange, said Sancho, about these petitioners. Is it possible they're so foolish they can't see that this isn't the right time of day to come with their petitions? By some chance, aren't those of us who are governors and judges men of flesh and blood too, and don't we need to have time to rest? Or do they think we're made of marble? By God and my conscience, if my governorship lasts, and I have an idea it won't, I'll get these petitioners under control. Now tell this good man to come in, but make sure first that he isn't one of those spies or a killer who wants to murder me. No, senor, responded the page, because he seems a simple soul, and either I don't know much, or he's as good as a piece of bread. There's nothing to fear, said the steward. We're all here. Butler, would it be possible said Sancho, now that Dr. Pedro Recio isn't here, for me to eat something with a little more weight and substance, even if it's a piece of bread and an onion. Tonight the supper will make up for the defects in your dinner, and your lordship will be well satisfied and content, said the butler. May God grant us that, responded Sancho. And at this point the farmer came in, a man of very decent appearance, and from a thousand leagues away one could see that he was honest and a good soul. The first thing he said was, Which one of you is the governor? Who else would it be, responded the secretary, except the one who's sitting on the chair? 
Then I humble myself in his presence, said the farmer. And going down on his knees, he asked for Sancho's hand to kiss. Sancho refused and ordered him to stand and tell him what he wanted. The farmer complied and said, Senor, I'm a farmer, a native of Miguel Tora, a village two leagues from Ciudad Real. We have another Tirte Afuera, said Sancho. Go on, brother, for I can tell you that I know Miguel Tora very well, and it's not very far from my village. Well, senor, the fact is, the farmer continued, that I, by the grace of God, am married with the blessing and consent of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. I have two sons who are students. The younger is studying for his bachelor's degree, and the older one for his licentiate. I am a widower because my wife died, or, I should say, a bad doctor killed her, purging her when she was pregnant. And if it had been God's will for the child to be born, and if it had been a boy, I would have had him study medicine, so he wouldn't be envious of his brothers, the bachelor and the licentiate. Which means, said Sancho, that if your wife hadn't died or hadn't been killed, you wouldn't be a widower now. No, senor, not at all, responded the farmer. Well, that's a fine thing, replied Sancho. Go on, brother, because now's the time for sleep, not petitions. Well, I'll tell you, said the farmer, that my son who's studying to be a bachelor fell in love with a maiden from our village named Clara Perlarina, the daughter of Andres Perlarino, a very rich farmer. And this name of Perlarin doesn't come to them from their ancestry or family, but because everyone in this lineage is palsied, and to improve the name they're called Perlarin, though if truth be told, the maiden is like an oriental pearl and looked at from the right side, she seems a flower of the field. From the left side, it's a different story, because she lost that eye when she had smallpox. And though she has many large pockmarks on her face, those who love her dearly say that those aren't pockmarks, but the graves where the souls of her suitors are buried. She is so clean that in order not to dirty her face, her nose, as they say, is so turned up that it looks like it's running away from her mouth. And still, she looks extremely attractive because her mouth is large, and if it weren't missing ten or twelve teeth, it would be counted and considered as one of the best formed. I have nothing to say about her lips, because they're so thin and delicate that if it were usual to wind lips, they could be made into a nice skein, but since their color is different from the one commonly found in lips, they seem miraculous because they are a mottled blue, green and purple. And, Senor Governor, please forgive me for painting in so much detail the traits of the woman who, in the long run, is going to be my daughter, because I love her dearly and think she's fine. Paint as much as you like, said Sancho, because I'm enjoying the picture. And if I had eaten, there couldn't be a better dessert for me than your portrait. I still have that to serve to you responded the farmer, but a time will come when we're ready for it, if we aren't now. And I say, senor, that if I could paint her elegance and the height of her body, it would be something amazing. But that's impossible, because she's stooped and hunched over, and her mouth is down to her knees. And even so, it's clear to see that if she could stand up, her head would touch the ceiling. And she would have given her hand in marriage to my bachelor by now, but... She can't extend it because it's withered, and with it all, by her long, grooved nails, you can see how well made and shapely it is. That's fine, said Sancho, 
You should realize, brother, that now you've painted her from head to toe. What is it that you want? And get to the point without beating around the bush or going around in circles or taking anything away or adding anything on. Senor, I would like, responded the farmer, for your grace to be so good as to give me a letter of support for her father, asking him kindly to allow this marriage to take place, for we are not unequal in our fortunes or our natures. To tell you the truth, Senor Governor, my son is possessed, and not a day goes by that evil spirits do not torment him, and because he fell once into the fire, his face is as wrinkled as parchment, and his eyes are somewhat teary and runny, but he has the disposition of an angel, and if he didn't beat and punch himself, he would be a saint. "'Is there anything else you want, my good man?' replied Sancho. "'I would like something else,' said the farmer, "'except I don't dare to say it, but, well, after all, whether I get it or not, "'it shouldn't fester inside, and so, senor, I would like your grace.' to give me three hundred or six hundred ducados to help with my bachelor's dowry, I mean, to help them set up a house, because, after all, they have to live on their own and not be subject to the interference of in-laws. See if there's anything else you want, said Sancho, and don't be too shy or too embarrassed to say it. No, I'm certain there's nothing else, responded the farmer. And as soon as he said this, the governor rose to his feet, picked up the chair where he had been sitting, and said, I swear, Don Crass and Crude, if you don't leave and get out of my sight right now, I'll break and crack your head open with this chair. Scoundrel and Horson, the demon's own painter, is this the right time to come and ask me for six hundred ducados? Where would I have them, you unbearable pest? And why would I give them to you if I did have them, you shifty fool? And what do I care about Miguel Tura and the lineage of the Perlarine? Get away from me, I say, or by the life of my lord the duke, I'll do what I said. You can't be from Miguel Tura. You must be some sly devil sent here from hell to tempt me. Tell me, you merciless man, I haven't had the governorship for a day and a half yet, and you want me to have six hundred ducados? The butler signaled to the farmer to leave the hall, which he did, head lowered, and apparently fearful that the governor would act on his rage, for the great scoundrel knew his trade very well. But let us leave Sancho and his rage, dear reader, with no argument or quarrel, and return to Don Quixote, whom we left with his face bandaged and treated for his feline wounds, which did not heal for eight days. And on one of them something happened that Sidi Hamete promises to recount as exactly and truthfully as all things in this history are recounted, no matter how trivial they may be. Chapter 48 Regarding what transpired between Don Quixote and Doña Rodriguez, duenna to the Duchess, as well as other events worthy of being recorded and remembered, forever. A badly wounded Don Quixote, his face bandaged and marked not by the hand of God, but by the claws of a cat, was far too dejected and melancholy at the misfortunes inherent in knight errantry. He did not go out in public for six days, and on one of those nights when he was sleepless and awake, thinking about his misfortunes and his pursuit by Altisidora, 
he heard someone opening the door of his room with a key. And then he imagined that the enamoured maiden was coming to assail his chastity and put him in a situation where he would fall short of the faith he was obliged to keep with his lady Dulcinea of Toboso. No, he said in a voice that could be heard, believing what he had just imagined. The greatest beauty on earth will not influence me to stop adoring the one I have engraved and impressed deep in my heart and at the very centre of my being. No matter, my lady, if you are transformed into an uncouth peasant or a nymph of the golden tajo weaving cloth of gold and silk or are being held by Merlin or Montesinos wherever they wish, for wherever you may be, you are mine, and wherever I go, I have been and shall be yours. The conclusion of these words and the opening of the door were all one. He stood on his bed, wrapped from head to toe in a yellow satin bedspread, a two-cornered beretta on his head, and his face and moustache bandaged, his face on account of the scratches, his moustache so that it would not droop and fall. And in this garb he seemed the most extraordinary phantom that anyone could imagine. He fixed his eyes on the door, and where he expected to see the overwhelmed and lovesick Altisidora come in, he saw instead a most reverend duenna, wearing white veils so long and intricate that they covered and enshrouded her from head to foot. In the fingers of her left hand she carried half a burning candle, and with her right hand she shadowed her face so that the light would not shine in her eyes, which were covered by very large spectacles. She stepped very softly and moved her feet very quietly. Don Quixote looked down at her from his observation post, and when he saw her manner of dress and noticed her silence, he thought that a witch or a sorceress had come in that attire to commit some villainy against him, and he began very quickly to cross himself. The terrifying vision continued to approach, and when she reached the middle of the chamber, she raised her eyes and saw with what urgency Don Quixote was making the sign of the cross. And if he was fearful at the sight of her figure, she was terrified at seeing his because as soon as she saw him so high and so yellow in the bedspread, and with the bandages that disfigured him, she screamed, saying, Jesus, what am I seeing? And she was so startled that she dropped the candle, and finding herself in the dark, she turned to leave, and in her fear she tripped on her skirts and fell with a great noise. A fearful Don Quixote began to say, I conjure thee, phantom, or whatever thou mayest be, to tell me what thou art, and to tell me what it is that thou wantest of me. If thou art a soul in torment, tell me, and I shall do for thee all that is in my power, for I am a Catholic Christian, and partial to doing good to everyone. For that reason I took on the order of knight-errantry, which I profess, whose exercise extends even to doing good to souls in purgatory. The dumbfounded duenna who heard herself being conjured, associated Don Quixote's fear with her own, and in a low and grieving voice she responded, Señor Don Quixote, if your grace happens to be Don Quixote, I am no phantom or vision or soul in purgatory, as your grace must have thought, but Doña Rodriguez, the duenna of honour to my lady the Duchess, and I have come to your grace because I am in the sort of need your grace usually remedies. Tell me, Señora Doña Rodriguez, said Don Quixote, by any chance has your grace come to act as a go-between? 
for I must tell you that I am not available to anyone, thanks to the peerless beauty of my lady Dulcinea of Toboso. In short, Senora Doña Rodriguez, I say that if your grace sits and puts aside all amorous messages, you may light your candle again and come back, and we shall speak of anything you like and desire, except, as I have said, any invitation to the affections. I serve as anyone's messenger, senor, responded the duenna. Your grace does not know me very well. Indeed, I have not yet reached so advanced an age that I resort to such foolishness. For, God be praised, I still have my soul in my body, and all my teeth and molars in my mouth, except for a few that were taken by the guitar, which is so common in this land of Aragon. But wait for me a moment, your grace, and I shall go out to light my candle and return in an instant to tell you of my cares, as if you were the one to remedy all the cares in the world. And without waiting for a reply, she left the room where Don Quixote remained, calm and pensive, waiting for her. But then he had a thousand thoughts regarding this new adventure, and it seemed to him that he had behaved incorrectly and shown worse judgment by placing himself in danger of breaking the faith he had promised his lady. And he said to himself, Who knows if the devil, who is subtle and cunning, wants to deceive me now with the duenna when he has failed with empresses, queens, duchesses, marquises, and countesses. For I have often heard it said by many wise men that if he can, he will give you a snub-nosed woman rather than one with an aquiline nose. And who knows whether this solitude, this opportunity, this silence will awaken my sleeping desires and cause me at this advanced age to fall where I never have stumbled. In cases like this, it is better to flee than to wait for the battle. But I cannot be in my right mind saying and thinking such nonsense, for it is not possible for a duenna in long white veils and spectacles to provoke or stimulate lascivious thoughts in the world's most susceptible bosom. Can there be a duenna on earth whose flesh is chaste? Can there be a duenna on the planet who is not insolent, affected, and pretentious? Be gone, then, duenna-esque horde, useless for any human pleasures. Oh, how wise the lady who, they say, had two figures of duennas with their spectacles and pincushions, as if they were doing needlework, at the end of her drawing-room couch, and the statues did as much for the authority of the room as real duennas did. And saying this, he leaped out of bed, intending to close the door and not allow Senora Rodriguez to enter. But as he was about to close it, Senora Rodriguez returned, holding a lighted candle of white wax. And when she saw Don Quixote more closely, wrapped in the bedspread, with his bandages, his cap or beretta, she became afraid again, took two steps backward, and said, Is my safety assured, Senor Knight? Because I do not take it as a sign of modesty that your grace has gotten out of your bed. I could very well ask the same question, senora, responded Don Quixote, and so I ask if I shall be safe from assault and violation. From whom or to whom, senor knight, do you ask for that assurance? responded the duenna. From you and to you, responded Don Quixote, for I am not marble and you are not bronze. And it is not now ten in the morning, but midnight or even a little later, I imagine, 
and this is a chamber more hidden and secret than the cave where the traitorous and reckless Aeneas enjoyed the beautiful and compassionate Dido. But give me, Signora, your hand, for I wish no greater assurance than that of my own countenance and modesty, and that offered by these most reverend veils. And having said this, he kissed her right hand, and held it in his own, and she did the same, with the same ceremony. Here, Sidehamete offers an aside, and says that, by Mohammed, he would give the better cloak of two that he owns to see them holding and grasping each other as they walked from the door to the bed. Don Quixote at last got into his bed, and Doña Rodriguez sat in a chair at some distance from the bed, not removing her spectacles or setting down the candle. Don Quixote concealed and hid himself completely, leaving only his face uncovered. And when the two had regained their composure, the first to break the silence was Don Quixote, saying, Now, Senora Doña Rodriguez, your grace can reveal and disclose all that is in your troubled heart and care-ridden soul, for it will be heard by my chaste ears and remedied by my compassionate deeds. I do believe, responded the duenna, that from your grace's gallant and pleasing presence one could expect only this Christian response. The fact, then, Senor Don Quixote, is that although your grace sees me sitting in this chair, in the middle of the kingdom of Aragon, and in the dress of an exhausted duenna in decline, I am a native of Asturias of Oviedo and my lineage is crossed with many of the best in that province, but my bad luck and the imprudence of my parents who became impoverished too soon, not knowing how or why, brought me to the court in Madrid, and for their peace of mind and to avoid greater misfortunes, my parents arranged for me to do needlework in the service of a noblewoman. I want your grace to know that no one has ever outdone me in the hemstitch or needlepoint. My parents left me in service and returned home, and in a few years they left there and must have gone to heaven because they were very good Catholic Christians. I was an orphan and dependent on the miserable salary and grudging favors that maids like me receive at court. At this time, without any sort of encouragement from me, a squire of the house fell in love with me, a man somewhat advanced in years, bearded and imposing, and, above all, as noble as the king because he was from the mountains. Our courtship was not so secret that it did not come to the attention of my lady, who, to avoid gossip and talk, married us with the approval and blessing of our Holy Mother Roman Catholic Church. And from our marriage, a daughter was born, putting an end to what good fortune I had, not because I died in childbirth, for I delivered safely and on time, but because not long afterward my husband died of fright. And if I had time now to tell you about it, I know that your grace would be astounded. And at this she began to cry very piteously and said, Senor Don Quixote, your grace must forgive me. "'But I cannot help it, because every time I remember my poor husband, "'my eyes fill with tears. Lord, save me! "'With what authority did he carry my lady on the hindquarters of a powerful mule, "'as black as jet itself? "'For in those days they did not use coaches or saddles as they do nowadays, "'and ladies rode behind their squires. 
this at least I must recount, so that you can see the breeding and manners of my good husband. Just as they were entering Calle Santiago in Madrid, which is rather narrow, a court magistrate with two bailiffs riding in front of him was coming out, and as soon as my good squire saw him, he turned the reins of the mule, indicating that he would turn back and accompany him. My lady, who was riding on the hindquarters of the mule, said in a low voice, "'What are you doing, you miserable wretch? Have you forgotten that I am here?' The magistrate, out of courtesy, pulled on the reins of his horse and said, "'Senor, continue on your way. It is I who should accompany Senora Doña Casilda, for that was the name of my mistress.' My husband still persisted, with hat in hand, in trying to accompany the magistrate, seeing which my lady, full of anger and rage, took a thick needle, or it might have been a long hairpin from its case, and stuck him in the back, so that my husband gave a great shout and twisted his body around, knocking my lady to the ground. Two of her lackeys hurried to pick her up, as did the magistrate and the bailiffs. The Guadalajara gate, I mean the shiftless people loitering there, was in an uproar. My mistress left on foot, and my husband went to the house of a barber, saying that his innards had been pierced right through. My husband's courtesy became the subject of so much talk that boys ran after him in the streets, and for that reason, and because he was somewhat short-sighted, my lady the Duchess dismissed him, and I have no doubt that his grief over this is what caused his death. I was left a helpless widow with a daughter to care for, whose beauty was growing like the ocean foam. Finally, since I was known for fine needlework, my lady, the Duchess, who had recently married my lord, the Duke, offered to bring me, as well as my daughter, to this kingdom of Aragon, where the days passed, and my daughter grew and was endowed with all the graces in the world. She sings like a lark, dances court dances like a lightning flash, and country dances like a whirlwind, reads and writes like a schoolmaster, and counts like a miser. I say nothing about her purity. Running water is not pure, and now, if I remember correctly, she must be sixteen years, five months, and three days old, give or take a few. In short, the son of a very rich farmer, who lives in a village not very far from here, which belongs to my lord the duke, fell in love with my girl. The fact is that I don't know how it happened, but they met, and promising to be her husband, he deceived my daughter, and now he refuses to keep his word. And even though my lord the duke knows about it, because I myself have complained to him not once but many times— and have asked him to order the farmer to marry my daughter, he ignores me and doesn't want to listen to me. And the reason is that since the seducer's father is so rich, and lends him money, and sometimes stands as his guarantor when he gets into difficulties, he doesn't want to anger or trouble him in any way. And so, senor, I would like your grace to take responsibility for righting this wrong." either by persuasion or by arms, for according to what everyone says, your grace was born into this world to redress grievances and right wrongs and come to the aid of those in need. Your grace should keep in mind that my daughter is an orphan and well-bred and young and possessed of all those gifts that I have mentioned to you, for by God and my conscience of all the maidens that my mistress has, there is none that can even touch the sole of her shoe." and the one they call Altisidora, the one they consider the most elegant and spirited, can't come within two leagues of my daughter. 
because I want your grace to know, senor, that all that glitters is not gold. This little Altisidora has more vanity than beauty, and more spirit than modesty, and besides, she's not very healthy. She has breath so foul that you can't bear to be near her, even for a moment. And then, my lady the Duchess. But I'd better be quiet, because they say that the walls have ears. By my life. What is wrong with my lady the Duchess, Senora Doña Rodriguez? asked Don Quixote. With that oath, responded the duenna, I must respond truthfully to what I have been asked. Senor Don Quixote, has your grace seen the beauty of my lady the Duchess, her complexion that resembles a smooth and burnished sword, her two cheeks of milk and carmine, the sun glowing on one and the moon on the other, and the elegance with which she treads even scorns the ground, so that it looks as if she were scattering health and well-being wherever she goes? Well, your grace should know that for this she can thank God, first of all, and then the two issues she has on her legs, which drain the bad humors that the doctors say fill her body. Holy Mary, said Don Quixote, is it possible that my lady the Duchess has those drains? I would not believe it if discalced friars told me so, but since Senora Rodriguez says it, it must be true. But from such issues in such places, there must flow not humors, but liquid amber. Truly, now I believe that this incising of issues must be important for one's health. As soon as Don Quixote had finished saying this, the doors of his room banged open, and Doña Rodriguez was so startled that the candle dropped from her hand, and the room was left like the inside of a wolf's mouth, as the saying goes. Then the poor duenna felt her throat grasped so tightly by two hands that she could not cry out, and another person with great speed and without saying a word raised her skirts and with what appeared to be a slipper began to give her so many blows that it was pitiful. Although Don Quixote was near her, he did not move from the bed and he did not know what it could be and he remained still and quiet, even fearing that the thrashing and the blows might be turned on him. And his was not an idle fear, for when they had left the duenna bruised and battered, she did not dare even to moan, the silent scourgers turned on Don Quixote, and stripping him of the sheet and bedspread, pinched him so hard and so often that he could not help but defend himself with his fists, all of this in the most remarkable silence. The battle lasted almost half an hour. The phantoms left. Doña Rodriguez picked up her skirts, and, groaning over her misfortune, went out the door without saying a word to Don Quixote, who, sorrowful and pinched, confused and thoughtful, was left alone, where we shall leave him, desiring to know which perverse enchanter had done this to him. But that will be told in due course, for Sancho Panza is calling us, and the harmonious order of the history requires that we respond. Chapter 49 Regarding what befell Sancho Panza as he patrolled his insula. We left the great governor 
angry and annoyed at the sly painter of a farmer who had been instructed by the steward, and the steward by the duke, to ridicule Sancho. But he stood his ground with all of them, even though he was foolish, unpolished, and plump. And he said to those who were with him, and to Dr. Pedro Recio, who had come back into the room once the secret matter of the duke's letter was concluded, "'Now I can really understand that judges and governors must be or should be made of bronze, so they won't feel the demands of petitioners who at all hours and in every season want them to listen and attend only to their petitions and to take care of them come what may. And if the poor judge doesn't listen to them and take care of them, either because he can't or because it isn't the time set aside for giving audiences, then they curse him and slander him and gnaw at his bones and even have things to say about his family. Foolish, thoughtless petitioner, don't be in a hurry. Wait for the right time and occasion to make your petition. Don't come when it's time to eat or sleep. For judges are flesh and blood, and they must give to their natures what they naturally demand. Except for me. I don't give mine anything to eat, thanks to our Dr. Pedro Recio Tirte Afuera, here present, who wants me to die of hunger, and who claims that this kind of death is life. May God grant the same to him and to all those of his kind. I mean bad doctors. The good ones deserve palms and laurels. All who knew Sancho Panza were amazed to hear him speak so elegantly, and they did not know how to account for it except for the fact that serious offices and responsibilities either strengthen the mind or make it torpid. Finally, Dr. Pedro Recio de Aguero de Tirte Afuera promised to give him supper that night, even if that exceeded all the aphorisms of Hippocrates. This made the governor happy, and he waited very impatiently for night and the supper hour to arrive. And although time, it seemed to him, stood still, not moving from the spot, yet the longed-for moment arrived, and for supper he was served a sarpicon of beef with onion, and some stewed calves' feet that were a little past their prime. He gave himself up to all of it, with more pleasure than if they had served him partridges from Milan, pheasants from Rome, veal from Sorrento, quail from Moron, or geese from Lavajos. And during his supper he turned to the doctor and said, Look, Senor Doctor, from now on don't bother about giving me delicate or exquisite things to eat, because that will drive my stomach out of its mind. It's used to goat, beef, bacon, dried meat, turnips, and onions— and if by some chance it's given palace dishes, it gets finicky, and sometimes even sick. What the butler can do is bring me what are called ollas podridas, and the more rotten they are, the better they smell, and he can pack them and fill them with anything he likes, as long as it's food. And I'll thank him for it and repay him some day. but don't let anybody try to trick me, because we either are or we aren't. Let's all live and eat in peace and good friendship, because when God sends the dawn, it's dawn for everybody. I'll govern this insula without forsaking the law or taking a bribe, and let everybody keep his eyes open and tend to his own affairs, because I want you to know that the devil makes trouble everywhere, and if you give me a chance, you'll see marvels, and if you turn into honey, the flies will eat you. Certainly, Senor Governor, 
said the butler. Your grace is correct in everything you have said, and I offer, in the name of all the insulanos of this insula, to serve your grace with all promptness, love, and benevolence, because the gentle form of governing that your grace has shown from the very beginning does not allow us to do or think anything that would redound to your grace's disservice. I believe that, responded Sancho. And they would be fools if they did or thought anything else. And I say again, that care should be taken with my feeding and the feeding of my donkey, which is what matters and is most important in this business. When it's time, we'll go on patrol, for it's my intention to clear this insula of all kinds of filth, as well as people who are vagrants, idlers, and sluggards, because I want you to know, my friends, that shiftless, lazy people are to the nation what drones are to the hive. They eat the honey that the worker bees produce. I intend to favor those who labor, maintain the privileges of the gentry, reward the virtuous, and above all, respect religion and the honor of the clergy. What do you think of this, my friends? Have I just said something, or am I racking my brains for nothing? Your grace has said so much, senor governor, said the steward, that I'm amazed to see a man as unlettered as your grace, who I believe has no letters at all, saying so many things full of wisdom and good counsel, far beyond what was expected of your grace's intelligence by those who sent us here, and by those who came here with you. Every day we see new things in the world. Deceptions become the truth, and deceivers find themselves deceived. Night arrived, and the governor had supper with the permission of Dr. Racio. They prepared to go on patrol, and the governor went out with the steward, the secretary, the butler, the chronicler who was charged with recording his deeds, and so many bailiffs and scribes they could have formed a medium-sized squadron. Sancho was in the middle of it, holding his staff, and it was a sight to see, and when they had gone down a few streets, they heard sounds of a dispute. They hurried to the spot and found only two men fighting. Seeing the law approach, the men stood still, and one of them said, here, over here, in the name of God and the king, how can you allow people to be robbed in the middle of town and assaulted in the middle of the street? Calm down, my good man, said Sancho, and tell me the reason for this fighting, for I am the governor. The other man said, Senor Governor, I'll tell you as briefly as I can. Your grace should know that this gentleman has just won more than a thousand reales in the gambling house across the way. God knows how. I happened to be present, and going against the dictates of my conscience, I judged more than one doubtful play in his favor. He left the game with his winnings, and though I expected him to give me at least an escudo as a tip, which is usual and customary for important men like me, who determine if things have been done well or badly, and confirm if there has been an injustice and avoid disputes, he put his money in his pocket and left the house. I came after him, indignant, and with kind and courteous words I asked him to give me even eight reales, for he knows I'm an honorable man and have no money and no work because my parents didn't leave me anything or teach me a trade, and this scoundrel, who's a bigger thief than Cacus and a bigger cheat than Andradilla, didn't want to give me more than four reales, and now your grace can see, senor governor, how little shame he has and how little conscience. By my faith, if your grace hadn't come by, I would have made him give up his winnings and taught him a good lesson. "'What do you say to this?' asked Sancho. "'And the other man responded that what his adversary said was true, 
He had not wanted to give him more than four reales because he had given him that amount many times, and those who expect a tip have to be well-mannered and take what is given to them with a smile and not demand explanations from the winners unless they know for certain that they are cheats and their winnings are ill-gotten gains. And as a sign that he was an honest man and not a thief, as the other man said, there was no better proof than his not wanting to give him anything because cheats always have to pay tribute to the onlookers who know them. "'That's true,' said the steward. "'Senor Governor, your grace will have to decide "'what ought to be done with these men.' "'What ought to be done is this,' responded Sancho. "'You, the winner, good, bad, or indifferent, "'must give your opponent a hundred reales, "'and another thirty to the poor men in prison. "'And you, who have no money and no work "'and are not needed on this insula, "'take the hundred reales and leave this insula by tomorrow.' You're banished for ten years, and if you come back before then, you'll finish your sentence in the next life, because I'll hang you from the gallows. Or at least the hangman will, on my orders, and let no one reply, or he'll feel my hand. One man paid, the other received, the latter left the insula, the former went home, and the governor remained, saying, Now, either I'm mistaken, or I'm going to close down these gambling houses, because it seems clear to me that they're very harmful. Your grace won't be able to close down this one, at least, said a scribe, because it's owned by a very important person, and what he loses every year at cards is incomparably more than what he wins. Your grace can show your power against other gambling dens of less distinction, which are the ones that do more harm and harbor more outrages in the houses of high-born gentlemen and nobles. The notorious cheats don't dare to use their tricks. And since the vice of gambling has become so widespread, it's better to gamble in distinguished houses than in those of workmen, where they keep a poor wretch for half the night and skin him alive. Now, scribe, said Sancho, I know there's a lot to say about this. At that moment, a constable came up to them, holding a young man, and he said, Senor Governor, this lad was coming toward us, and as soon as he saw that we were the law, he turned his back and began to run like a deer, a sign that he must be a criminal. I went after him, and if he hadn't tripped and fallen, I never would have caught him. Why were you running away? asked Sancho, to which the young man responded, Senor, to avoid answering all the questions that constables ask. What's your trade? A weaver. And what do you weave? The iron tips of lances, with your grace's kind permission. Are you being funny with me? Are you proud of being a joker? Fine. Where were you going now? Senor, to take the air. And where do you take the air on this insula? Wherever it blows. Good, your answers are right to the point. You're clever, boy, but you should know that I'm the heir and I'm blowing at your back and sending you to prison. You there, seize him and take him away, and I'll make him sleep without any air tonight. By God, said the young man, your grace will make me sleep in prison when you make me king. And why can't I make you sleep in prison, responded Sancho. Don't I have the power to arrest you and let you go whenever I want to? No matter how much power your grace has, said the young man, it won't be enough to make me sleep in prison. You think so, replied Sancho. Take him right now to the place where he'll see the truth with his own eyes, no matter how much the warden tries to use self-interested generosity with him. 
I'll fine the warden two thousand ducados if he lets you take one step out of prison. All this is laughable, responded the young man. The fact is that every man alive today won't make me sleep in prison. Tell me, you demon, said Sancho, do you have an angel who'll take you out and remove the irons that I plan to put on you? Now, senor governor, the young man responded with great charm, let's use our reason and come to the point. Suppose, your grace, that you order me taken to prison, and there I'm put in irons and chains and placed in a cell, and the warden will suffer great penalties if he lets me out, and he obeys every order you give him. Even so, if I don't want to sleep and stay awake the whole night without closing my eyes, is all your grace's power enough to make me sleep if I don't want to? No, of course not, said the secretary, and the man has proven his point. Which means, said Sancho, that you wouldn't sleep simply because it's your will not to, not because you want to go against mine. No, senor, said the young man, I wouldn't dream of that. Well, then, said Sancho, go with God back to your house to sleep, and may God give you a sound sleep, for I don't want to rob you of that, but I do advise that from now on, you don't mock the law, because you may come across a constable who'll take the joke out of your hide. The young man left, and the governor continued on his patrol, and in a little while two constables came along holding a man, and they said, Senor Governor, this person who looks like a man isn't one. She's a woman, and not an ugly one, and she's dressed in men's clothes. They raised two or three lanterns up to her eyes, and in their light they saw the face of a woman who seemed to be sixteen years old, or perhaps a little older, with her hair caught up in a net of gold and green silk, and as beautiful as a thousand pearls. They looked at her from head to toe, and saw that she was wearing stockings of scarlet silk, with garters of white taffeta edged in gold and seed pearls, her breeches were green, made of cloth of gold, as was her jacket or loose coat, under which she wore a doublet of a very fine gold and white cloth, and her men's shoes were white. On her belt she did not wear a sword, but a richly decorated dagger, and on her fingers there were many precious rings. In short, everyone thought the girl was lovely, and no one recognized her, and the residents of the village said they could not think who she might be. And those who were privy to the tricks that were to be played on Sancho were the ones who were most bewildered, because they had not arranged this incident and discovery, and so they were in doubt, waiting to see how the matter would turn out. Sancho was amazed at the girl's beauty. And he asked her who she was, where she was going, and what had moved her to dress in those clothes. She her eyes lowered in modesty and shame, responded, I cannot, senor, say publicly what it has been so important for me to keep secret. But I want one thing understood. I am not a thief or a wicked person, but an unfortunate maiden forced by the power of jealousy to break with the decorum owed to modesty. Hearing this, the steward said to Sancho, Senor Governor, have these other people move away so the lady can say whatever she wishes with less embarrassment. The governor so ordered, and everyone moved away except the steward, the butler, and the secretary. When they were alone, the maiden continued, saying, Senores, I am the daughter of Pedro Perez Mazorca, the tax collector for wool in this village, who often comes to my father's house. 
This doesn't make sense, Senora, said the steward, because I know Pedro Perez very well, and I know he has no children, male or female, and besides, you say he's your father, and then you add that he often comes to your father's house. I noticed that too, said Sancho. Now, Senores, I'm very upset, and I don't know what I'm saying, responded the maiden. But the truth is that I'm the daughter of Diego de la Llana, whom all your graces must know. Now that makes sense, responded the steward, for I know Diego de la Llana, and I know he's a distinguished gentleman and very rich, and that he has a son and a daughter, and since he was widowed, there's no one in the entire village who can say he's seen the face of his daughter, for he keeps her so secluded, not even the son can see her. And even so... The rumor is that she's extremely beautiful. That is true, responded the maiden, and I'm that daughter, and you, senores, can say now if the rumor about my beauty is false or not, for you have seen me. And then she began to weep most piteously. Seeing this, the secretary leaned toward the butler's ear and said very quietly, there can be no doubt that something important has happened to this poor maiden, because in these clothes, and at this hour, and being a gentlewoman, she's not in her house. No doubt about it, responded the butler, and her tears confirm your suspicion. Sancho consoled her with the best words he knew, and asked her to have no fear, and tell them what had happened to her, and all of them would attempt very earnestly to remedy it in every way possible. The fact is, senores, she responded, that my father has kept me secluded for ten years, the same amount of time my mother has been in the ground. At home, mass is said in a magnificent oratory, and in all this time I have not seen more than the sun in the sky during the day and the moon and stars at night, and I don't know what streets or squares or temples or even men look like except for my father and a brother of mine and Pedro Perez, the tax collector, and because he normally comes to my house, I had the idea of saying he was my father in order not to reveal who mine really is. This seclusion and my father's refusal to allow me to leave the house, not even to go to church, have made me very unhappy for many long days and months. I would like to see the world, or at least the village where I was born, and it seemed to me that this desire did not go against the decorum that well-born maidens ought to observe. When I heard that people had bullfights and cane fights and put on plays, I asked my brother, who was a year younger than I am, to tell me what those things were, as well as many other things I had not seen. He told me in the best way he could, but this only inflamed my desire to see them. Finally, to shorten the tale of my perdition, I'll say that I begged and pleaded with my brother, and I wish I never had begged and pleaded for anything. And she began to cry again. The steward said to her, Your grace should continue, senora, and finish telling us what has happened, for your words and your tears have us all in suspense. I have few words left to say, responded the maiden, but many tears to weep because badly placed desires cannot bring any reduction, only more of the same. The maiden's beauty had left its mark in the butler's soul, and once more he raised his lantern in order to see her again, and it seemed to him she was shedding not tears, but seed pearls or the dew on the meadows, and he exalted them even higher and compared them to oriental pearls, and he hoped her misfortune was not as great as her tears and sighs seemed to indicate.
the governor was becoming impatient at the length of time it took the girl to tell her history, and he told her not to keep them in suspense any longer, for it was late and they still had a good part of the town to patrol. She, between interrupted sobs and broken sighs, said, "'My misfortune and my misery are simply that I asked my brother to let me dress as a man in some of his clothes, and to take me out one night to see the village while our father was sleeping. He, besieged by my pleas, agreed, and he gave me these clothes.' and dressed himself in some of mine, which suited him as if he had been born to them, because he doesn't have a beard yet, and looks exactly like a very beautiful maiden. And to-night, about an hour ago, more or less, we left the house, and guided by our young and foolish thoughts, we walked all around the village. When we wanted to return home, we saw a great crowd of people coming toward us, and my brother said to me, "'Sister, this must be the patrol. Put wings on your feet and run with me so they won't recognize us.' "'for that will not be in our favor. "'And saying this, he turned, "'and I won't say he began to run, but to fly. "'Before I had taken six steps, I fell. "'I was so frightened, "'and then the officer of the law came "'and brought me before your graces, "'where, because I am wicked and capricious, "'I find myself shamed before so many people.' "'And so, Signora,' said Sancho, "'no other misfortune has happened to you.' "'Not even the jealousy you mentioned at the beginning of your story "'to bring you out of your house?' "'Nothing has happened to me. "'And jealousy didn't bring me out, but only my desire to see the world, "'which didn't go beyond seeing the streets of this town.' "'And the truth of what the maiden had said was confirmed "'by the arrival of constables holding her brother, "'whom one of them had overtaken when he ran from his sister.' He wore a rich skirt and a shawl of blue damask, with fine gold passementry, and no headdress or any other adornment on his head except for his hair, which was so blonde and curly it looked like rings of gold. The governor, the steward, and the butler moved to one side with him, and not letting his sister hear what they were saying, they asked him why he was wearing those clothes, and he, with no less shame and embarrassment, told the same story that his sister had told which brought great joy to the enamoured butler. But the governor said, Certainly, senores, this has been a childish prank. And to tell about this foolishness and daring, there was no need for so many long tears and sighs, just saying, We're so and so and such and such, and we left our father's house in disguise to enjoy ourselves, just out of curiosity, for no other reason, would have been the end of the story, without all that sobbing and weeping and carrying on. That's true, responded the maiden. But your graces should know I was so upset I could not be as brief as I should have been. Nothing's been lost, responded Sancho. "'Let's go, and we'll leave your graces at your father's house. "'Maybe he hasn't missed you. "'And from now on, don't be so childish or so eager to see the world. "'An honorable maiden and a broken leg stay in the house. "'And a woman and a hen are soon lost when they wander. "'And a woman who wants to see also wants to be seen. "'That's all I'll say.' "'The boy thanked the governor for his kindness in taking them to their house, "'and so they set out, for it was not very far. When they arrived, the brother tossed a pebble at a jealousied window, and a maid who had been waiting for them came down immediately and opened the door, and they went in, leaving everyone amazed by their gentility and beauty, and by their desire to see the world at night and without leaving the village. But they attributed it all to their youth. 
The butler's heart had been pierced, and he resolved to go the next day and ask her father for her hand, certain he would not be denied, since he was a servant to the duke. And even Sancho had a desire and a wish to marry the boy to his daughter, Sanchica. And he decided to do so when the time came, believing that no husband could be denied the daughter of a governor. With this, the night's patrol ended, and two days later, the governorship and with it all of his plans were wiped out and destroyed, as we shall see later. <laughs>